You are listening to audio from the Decidedly Podcast. For more information, find us on Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. Have you ever had to just disengage with a client or fire a client? Um, yeah, a couple of times. Yeah, it's never it's never fun. I, I had to do this recently with a coaching client that was consistently making suboptimal decisions. Mm-hmm. And even some of those I, I pointed out to them were, were in contrast or in conflict with their own stated values and was just not able to, uh, I think, align sort of where I could help them. It was, yeah, it was some, a tough decision, but it was, I was like, I've, I've got to, I'm not, we're not clicking. Yeah. As a, as a coach and, a, and an advisor, what you're trying to do is orient someone's actions to their aim. Yeah. You want to help them align their actions to their aim, because if you can align their actions to their aim, then the outcome is going to be oriented to the aim. Uh, right. Although you can't guarantee an outcome. And so if somebody is consistently acting in conflict with the aim that they've shared. Uh, like you can't reconcile that because that's fundamental to what you've, what you're trying to help them with. Right. And I, I think in this, in this specific case, there were decisions that were being made that were being made from a place of maybe fear or reluctance to action, or they, they were coming from, from not good places and certainly not aligned with their values, but it was consistent. Uh, yeah. So there were there were sort of deeper issues. To me, on. that that is a clear indicator that they're they probably were actually not misaligned with their values. What was misaligned is their true values and their stated values. Yeah, the, well, because, yes, because yes. if you're consistently acting out of alignment with the things that you say you want to be aligned to, the only explanation for that is demonic possession or you <laughs> misstated what your value yeah are. no i think that's I, I think you're you're right is that the real values and motivate intrinsic motivations that were driving their decision making uh were not really what they posted up on the Those on values. the on the board in the break room right? those values have to be for us uh they have to be for ourselves they have to be uh individualized um and with within the context of a company they have to be collaborative, right? If they are me, the owner, dictating what the values of the company ought to be, right? Uh, they won't resonate and they won't be motivating and they'll be met with resistance by the other individuals on the team. But if you're wanting to align your values with your actions and align your stated values with your true values, then this conversation with Dr. Art Markman is going to help you do that. Dr. Markman's a professor of psychology and marketing at the University of Texas at Austin. He's published over 150 scholarly works on topics such as the effect of motivation on learning and performance, analogical reasoning, categorization, decision-making, and creativity. Art is the director of the Human Dimensions of Organizations program at the University of Texas. He's also a frequent contributor to Psychology Today, Fast Company, and the Harvard Business Review. He serves as a member of the editorial board of Cognitive Psychology, and he's the co-host of the Two Guys on Your Head podcast. Stick around for a conversation with Dr. Art Markman. You will walk away with practical tips on how to align your life with 
your ultimate aim and orient yourself toward your own values. I'm Sager Smith with my dad, Sean Smith. This is Decidedly. Hey, Art, thanks for being here. Hey, Art. Absolutely my pleasure. Thanks so much for uh, for inviting me. So you're an academic expert on decision-making. We won't give you any grief for your decision to be um, loyal to the university in Austin as we both went to A&M. We won't give you any grief for it. Yeah, we That's really okay. had to even struggle. We trust that we trust that you're an expert, despite that. <laughs> and, and that's okay. And and believe me, you won't notice that I'm talking a little slowly on your behalf. <laughs> <laughs> How's it going? <laughs> so, uh, you got your bachelor's in cognitive science. That's fascinating to me because that was not an option uh, at uh, the old school and college station. Um. As an 18-year-old, you're looking through the list of future career paths. What's going through your head when you think, ah, you know, cognitive science, that's what I'm going to go down? You know, to be to be honest with you, I went to college uh, thinking I might major in economics or physics, uh, and, and I took an economics class, and I didn't like it, and I took a physics class, and it didn't like me, really? uh, and so I, uh, I I took a lot of things, and... and, and um, I got to the end of my sophomore year and I was sitting down with an academic advisor and she said to me, you know, you, you need to pick a major. I said, yeah, but I'm not sure what to major in. I said, I've taken a few psych classes and I liked them, but I don't think I want to be a psychologist. And I took a few computer science classes and I like those, but I don't think I want to go into computer science and took some neuroscience classes like those, but I didn't, didn't, don't necessarily want to be a neuroscientist. I took an anthropology class. I like that, but I don't want to be an anthropologist. I took a linguistics class. I like that. I don't want to be, uh, and I kind of went through the list like this and, and the, the advisor looked at me and said, you realize every single course you just listed counts towards the major in cognitive science. Is it possible you're a cognitive scientist? And I said, well, I, maybe I am. When you put and, it that uh, way, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Process yeah, of once, elimination, I think. <laughs> well, once, once you throw it out to me like that, I realized, oh, so sometimes, you know, it really is helpful to have somebody else reflect back to you all the things you've been doing and 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 bring to your attention an option you hadn't even considered before. And and so, yeah, I, I embraced that. And, and uh, you know, honestly, I my, my biggest passion as an undergrad uh, academically was on the computer science side of things. For example, my undergraduate honors thesis had a lot of the mathematical techniques that are that are underlying a lot of these large language models. Uh, you know, it, back in the 80s, computers were slow and stupid, so so you couldn't you couldn't do the sophisticated things that they can do now with the large amounts of data and the incredible processing power. But you know, I I looked at the situation in the late 80s and thought, you know, I'm I'll make more progress trying to understand intelligent behavior by studying people than I will studying computers. And so I ended up going into into psychology because cognitive psychology was a chance to study intelligent human behavior. So what took you to uh, University of Texas? So, you know, as with everything in the academic uh, life, it's a it's a circuitous path. Um, I was a graduate student at the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana. And uh, Got a, got a visiting faculty job at Northwestern for a couple of years, which was wonderful. And I actually interviewed here at the University of Texas back in 1993 
uh, when I uh, when I first went on the job market looking for a, a tenure track faculty job, and there were two I think really great candidates who who interviewed for that job. I'll, I'll say I was one of them, but there was another really wonderful candidate, and and they actually offered the job to her, uh, and and I uh, I ended up getting a job at Columbia uh, in New York, and uh, so you know things things worked out okay. But but in my fifth year at Columbia, I bumped into somebody I met on my interview uh, when I was here, and he said, "Isn't it about time you moved?" And I said, <laughs> "What do you have in mind?" And he said, "Well, we have another job opening," and uh, and the next thing I knew, I found myself moving to Austin, and that was that was in 1998. And I've been here been been here ever since. Was that a culture shock going from New York to Austin? You know, it not as much of a culture shock as it might have been going from say New York to Midland. Um, you know everybody it, experiences it, culture shock when they go going to midland, to midland like yeah from odessa yeah. i uh you know no it's it, it was interesting because i i i fell in love with austin from my visits and um and, you know at a time when everyone was right and the interesting thing about 1998 was uh that was that was right before austin hit the national scene in a big way so yeah. I would say to people in New York, oh, I'm, I'm going to be taking this job at the University of Texas. They'd say, well, why are you moving to Texas? So well, it's, it's Austin. It's really very different than than your vision of, of, of what you think Texas is about. And and they didn't they said, what do you what does that even mean? And, and <laughs> the same people two or three years later were like, I can't believe you live in Austin. That's so amazing. So it just it kind of blossomed in that yeah. in that period. And, you know, it's it's I mean, I you know, Texas. Yeah, Austin. Austin is a Texas city. I mean, I any you know you have to you have to understand that. I mean, you all understand that, but I think you, you know pe- people who look at Austin and think, no, no, it's 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 not really a Texas. I think city. there really? are a lot. Of, there's a lot of misconceptions about Austin. You know, when you see, I, I've watched movies where people are supposed to be in Austin. They'll they'll have like mountains in the background, or you know, yeah, prayers. have like a Georgia accent. Right. Yes. Yeah. The like yeah, yeah. southern accent. You're like, oh my yeah. god. Uh, did do you find that in dealing in the field of, of psychology and brain science decision making that there are misconceptions that people have about the type of work that you're doing there? You know, um, of course, the, the most dangerous thing you can do when you're sitting next to somebody is to tell them you're a psychologist because they really? immediately think, oh, you're analyzing me. And I have to explain to people right up front, I don't care about your problems. So, so <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna use that. Yeah, line. yeah. <laughs> you made the mistake of assuming I, yeah, yeah. I cared at all. I cared. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, but but you know it's it's I mean I I I love the field of cognitive psychology. I mean it it what's fascinating to me is the the more that you spend your time really watching what other people do, understanding the 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 way that people are making decisions, the way that they're engaging in problem solving. Um, it, it, it really helps you to work effectively with other people and it helps you in your own life to, to think more carefully about, about what really matters in making decisions. Can you, can you actually, um, for example, you know, one of the things that a lot of people do is, um, you know, they start to want something. And when, when you, when you're motivated to want something, your brain does an interesting thing which is it focuses you on the the things that that are desirable about what you want and the things that are undesirable about what you don't want. And so you get this stilted view of the world because your brain's trying to help you to reach the decision you want to reach. And so 
you know, one of the one of the things that's really helpful is to walk around for a day when you've got a really important decision to make. Walk around for a day believing you want something else. And ask yourself, how does the world look different when you when you convince yourself that I want something different than what I actually want? And and you'll find you suddenly start seeing the more attractive things about about the options yeah, you yeah. before. It is- it's those little things that 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 end up being, I think, life changing when when you're when you're acting as a psychologist and 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 trying to do other things in the world. But when you talk about believing as if you're something else, I think yeah. I know what you're talking about. But um, some uh, some people, when they hear you say that, they go, "What do you mean? Act like I believe something else? I I can't just believe something else because I believe what I believe." Well, you sure, but but you know, so imagine for example you're hiring somebody. So, you know, you 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 know, you've got a you got a small business and and in you know, particularly in small businesses, the people you hire are so crucial because they they are proportionally a a, a big part of your company, you know. And so you've got to make those decisions in an effective way. And you might have a, a list of candidates that you've that you've interviewed and there might be one of them that you're thinking, you know, this is really this is the right person. Um you know, before you actually extend that offer, take the second person on the list and just say to yourself, you know what, actually, what if, what if this was the person? Just walk around for the day thinking to yourself, what if that's the person? And, and what happens is you start thinking, oh yeah, you know, they said this interesting thing in the interview and, and the person that I like, you know, actually they were a little arrogant in certain ways and you, you notice different things. And, now, those things that you notice may not dissuade you from selecting that first uh, option in the end, but they may at least give you a clearer-eyed view of that option in ways that might help you to bring that person on board or or to be aware of potential problems that could arise later that you might not be aware of if you hadn't walked around thinking, you know what, let's pretend for a moment that actually I favor that second candidate. That's that's an interesting approach. I, I just bought a, a a Tesla recently, and so that's a that's a big decision because not it's not just a decision to buy a different car; it's a decision to engage in a different platform altogether, right? So I have right. to install right. a charging system in my house. I've got you know, there's all kinds of things. Yeah, and, I got a Mach E, so I, I feel you. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so you're saying, had I thought about that and said, "All right, this is just the other car I'm going to get, the other gas engine driven car," um, that that could help me evaluate the pain points of the decision that I'm leaning towards. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so you you know because if you said, well, you know what, my choice is between buying this Tesla or you know, buying this other, you know, gas powered car, you might be thinking to yourself, gosh, you know, am I, how worried, how many times will I have to drive a couple of hundred miles? Right. You know, and what am I going to do then? You know, and, and just then really kind of work through that process in the end, you know, you still may come to the point of saying, yeah, I'm, you know, the electric vehicle is the one for me, but you know, in the event that I have to drive to Houston, maybe I'll rent a car that one time a year that I have to do that. Um, you know, or or you know, just plan and 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 leave a little early so that I've got time to to, to go to a supercharger. But but the idea is you've thought it through already right. because you've because you you spent a little bit of time saying, what if I didn't want this, or what if I actually was leaning in the other direction? 
Yeah. So I, I have talked to people that I, that I coach from a, in a business setting and I've used an example, not, not exactly like what you just described, but I call it the opposite approach, right? To say, all right, so this is the path we're thinking about where we're going to, for example, we're going to hire a bunch of staff so that we can, or, you know, sales guys so that we can do this. We're going to get bigger. So, so what would be the opposite approach? What if we got smaller and we still had the same objective, how would we solve for that? And it really helped people sort of think through different paths, sort of open up yeah. different different brain channels. You mentioned something earlier. I want to go back to you. You were talking about making the decisions and saying, well, how do you sort of follow what you want if you're making a decision? How do you know if that what you want uh, drive is is true or is leading you to the place you ought to go yeah um well i you know i so i think there's several things you can do right i mean you know one of which is is to um is to try to believe the opposite for a little while just to see yeah. if that changes the way you see the world but i think it's also really helpful and this is you know this gets back to what you were saying about being a coach one of the nice things about have about having a coach is your coach doesn't want what you want, you know. So they they can be a little bit more neutral yeah. than than you are, and so they can they can then you know you can empower your coach to to play devil's advocate for you to say hey you know what is that really the goal that you that, that you want to pursue you know you you seem to be locked into thinking that this is the only way to to make the progress that you want to make is it. You know, is you know, here here are some alternatives that you might consider, and to have somebody who it's sort of like when you're going to buy a car, it can be really helpful to have somebody who who doesn't care about that car, who who can who can pull you away when you're when you're about to get uh, pay way too much for that for that vehicle. Right, and sometimes that devil's advocate is um, not necessarily an official role, but like a de facto role within our company is we hire yeah. people who have opposite positive characteristics of ourselves. So yeah. my most trusted employee, my most valued employee on the team, as far as the advice that we collaborate with and, and um, the breadth of her involvement in the company, as far as positive personality traits, we almost share none of the same <laughs> positive traits. She's got all the things that I'm bad at. She's, she's good at those things. And she also processes information differently. So she comes from, a, a different bias than than I do. It doesn't make it better or worse. But my bias might be when it comes to uncertainty is I want to embrace it. I want to look at how do we adapt and change and grow. And the negative is sometimes I'm going to move into change that's unnecessary and move in too quickly and I'll leave behind things that were actually working perfectly fine. And her bias is to protect what works really well. She's on the other side, not quite as quick to embrace the change. So the negative for her is she's a little too slow to react, but she's definitely never going to accidentally leave behind something that works well. So when I present ideas, she's almost always the devil's advocate. And I'm almost yeah. always the devil's advocate for her on her ideas. And it just works perfect. Yeah. that That's yeah. really, it's really terrific. You know, it's, it's funny. I mean, when you're when you're hiring, particularly folks that you're going to work really closely with, um, there's an initial bias to hire people who are very similar to you. You know, you get along with them really well. You see eye to eye. 
with them. The, the conversations flow really effectively. But part of the reason that that happens is because you agree on a bunch of things and it's just easier to agree with people than to disagree. And I think that that one of the things that's important is to have people who are close to you in key decision situations that you respect but don't agree with, that could come at things from a different perspective. And that different perspective might be a personality perspective. They are more motivated. So for example, if you're, you know, Sire, it sounds like you're very open to experience in the personality realm, that, that yes. you find new things really interesting uh, and that your close associate is a little bit more on the close to experience end of thing, things, appreciating the the tried and true. And and that that is a motivational orientation can be really powerful to have to have people who differ in that way because because they will they will naturally cling to different things um but but despite the fact that that can be really powerful it can also be really uncomfortable and at some point you can find yourself getting frustrated like just just saying would you just just for once agree with me on this um (laughs) you know and and the fact is that that for important decisions having somebody agree with you quickly is not a bonus. Yeah, I, I think when you when you look at companies that have a lot of that hiring bias, they end up having overlap in the same type of thinking, the same type of approach to accomplishing things. Sanger and I had a, a consultant we met with just a few weeks ago. He used a phrase that I, I, I liked. He called it constructive conflict, I think was the phrase yeah. that, that he used. And I thought it was was good because what he was encouraging us to do was find ways to facilitate the conflict on purpose so that it was creating a positive outcome. It wasn't destructive, but say, Hey, we disagree. Let's talk about how this can be resolved or, you know, say, Oh, we disagree. Good. Good. Yes. Oh, here we go. Now there's an opportunity instead of, Oh, we disagree. How do I, how do I, uh, you know, tiptoe around this one? Yeah. No, those disagrees, disagreements need to come from a place of respect. They need to come from a place of knowledge. Uh, and, and they need to be done in a way that is intended to reach a good outcome. And, and so, you know, I think when you, when you have that level of respect and, and, and you're willing to talk through the disagreement uh, and, and to, to try to really understand where is it coming from and how, how can we make sure that we resolve it in a way so that even if everybody isn't a hundred percent happy with the outcome, we are, uh, at least we feel like we, 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 uh, assessed all of the important elements of it along the way. Yeah, that makes sense. On the big five personality traits, I notice that, um, in the, my very limited experience, the married partners that I know who have done this you know, who have done an assessment on the, their big five traits. They're not too different, but they're not too similar. So yeah. um, is there an optimal range that people ought to be kind of balancing each other on that? Yeah. I mean, I, I, it's a great question. And I think if, you know, if we think about any, um, any close relationship, whether it's a married relationship or a close business relationship, you know, you don't want to be identical uh, to somebody. But but I, I do think when you're when you're very different, that that can be 
difficult as well. So just 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 for everybody, you know, for the sake of, of everybody listening right now, big five personality characteristics, which is big five is the is the really good scientifically validated system for personality. The acronym for the five is OCEAN, openness to experience, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. Uh, neuroticism being sort of how much energy do you have in your motivational system, which tends to cause people to worry and 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 be anxious a lot. Um, you know, I think that that having people who balance each other out a little bit can be really good. Um, you don't want to be too far apart, you know. And so, so let give you let me give you a couple of examples of why this could be right. So, for example, if you're if you have if you have a couple where where one person is very open to experience and another is very closed to experience, that can create a lot of tension because one person wants to try new movies, go to new restaurants, go to go to new you know vacation destinations, and the other one wants to just do the things that they've done in the past. And so you're going to find yourself being pulled very far yeah. away from what you're comfortable with. If you're, you know, if there's a little bit of of disagreement, that can be great because one person might be prone to just try every new thing, you know, and not every new right. thing is good. <laughs> so right. so sometimes it's worth, you know, actually saying, you know, let's let's actually think about this. Maybe let let's let some of our other friends try this out before we before we go and do this. So I think, you know, I think again, having, having a little bit of, of tension there is okay. You know, invariably one partner is often a little bit more conscientious than the other. You know, you're really conscientious people. They're, they're making sure that surfaces are clean, that everything gets cleaned up, that there's no dirty socks that are just sitting there on the floor. Um, you know, I think if you have people who are wildly different, you can create a lot of tension there because one person just never notices anything that needs to be uh, fixed or cleaned up or taken care of. And the other one's always noticing it. And, and that can be really bad. But, but I think, you know, having a little bit of a difference is good because, you know, on the one hand, you got somebody who, who's going to be more prone to saying, Hey, let's, let's make sure we keep the household running, but also the other one who say, yeah, and I'll play my role in that, but you know what, let's relax. It's a Saturday and that sock that's on the floor isn't going to hurt anybody, you know, and you can, uh, you, you know, you can kind of uh, balance those things out. So, yeah, I think having a I think in a lot of close relationships, having having a, a productive tension is good. Having a significant difference can be problematic. And, and you got to then you got to be just aware of it. You got to be aware of, hey, here's the place where we really differ from each other. And so we just need to be aware uh, that that this is going to be a significant source of tension. for Yeah, us. it seems like in both um, in hiring in the in our business, we have a bias, like you said, to attract people who are like us. You know, we're, we're yeah. not necessarily, we don't only have a bias to electing the people who are like us. We probably have a bias in the people who show up are going to be like us anyway, by default. And I see that it's kind of like similar in uh, romantic relationships in the sense that if you ask most people and describe your ideal partner, like a lot of people who are inexperienced in relationships yeah. will describe themselves. <laughs> you know, yeah, my yeah. Uh, a good friend of mine was like struggling with, with dating recently. He's like, Oh man, you know, it just hadn't worked out. Like, well, who are you looking for? Goes, oh, I want someone who loves the outdoors, who's independent. One of those like strong, independent woman who's conservative and uh, she can just like spend time on, on her own. She doesn't need to be around people. Loves like, Batman movies. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, Darren, what are you talking about? You're describing yourself. Uh, like, you don't want that. Um, you want someone with some some ability to, to not even necessarily balance, but provide something new that's not currently present in 
in your life or in your business. That's right. Yeah. No, I think that's that's exactly right. And I think that, you know, in in you know, who you resonate to in the short term is not who you will derive the most pleasure of being around in the long term. And and you got to take that long-term view. And that's a th- that's a thing about decision making in general is is that we are strongly biased to do things that feel right in the short term when most of the best decisions we make in our lives have the, have great long-term impact. And so, you know, really trying to help have people help you to see this is the right decision for your long term. So I had a, a business part for a while that, that we were on opposite ends of the spectrum on how we engaged with uh, facts and data. And and so this this guy would would really was really good at researching, was really detailed and thorough, uh really understand the facts and, and just really enjoyed it. I'm on the other end of the spectrum where I would sort of say, well, just give me the the high level overview, uh, just kind of summarize this, which would irritate him to know it. Um, what we found was that my strength, I'll call it a strength, this was a strength as well, in, in looking at sort of the whys, the why are we doing this, what are we trying to get to, what's the bottom line, would slow his, his processes down, but was ultimately good for making a quality decision because I would bring us back. I kept bringing us back to high level. And so I would say, he would tell me something. I said, well, give me the high level overview. And he'd go up a little bit. I said, no, no, no. Give me the high level overview of that. I mean, we'd really have to. So I guess my question is when we look at, at this and we have people who are really approaching something different, maybe it's Sanger's example about uh, innovation and, and uncertainty. How do you reconcile these things without just irritating the hell out of somebody <laughs> and, and get to a good decision? I mean, are there techniques yeah. that you can go through and sort of say, help me through this? Yeah, no, I, I, it's so important to, to really think that through. And I think, you know, part of this too is when you, when you think about the division of labor in a, in, in, in any uh, company, one of the things you have to do is to is to have both a someone who's going to act in that visionary strategic leadership role, as well as somebody who is going to really be very operationally minded and make sure that the commitments that you're making can actually be carried out. And and the people who are strong in one of those tend not to be strong in the other. And it doesn't mean that they're weaknesses per se, but they don't tend to be that area of focus. And And I think that you know, a lot of times when you have when you have data people, you have people who are really thinking very rooted in in boots on the ground. This is the next step that needs to be taken. This is what cash flow is going to look like. This is this is the number of people we're going to have to engage with, whatever it is. I mean, really very focused on on metrics and uh, and and a lot of times the that more strategic leader is thinking, yeah, okay, the metrics matter, but really, how are we going to get there? What are what is the you know at a high level? What are we trying to accomplish? What are the you know what it, what is that that broader goal? And 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 you know you you need both, right? You you need somebody who actually can see the forest for the trees and can recognize that there's that there's a path that will work. That is a very different way of approaching the business than people have, have have tried in 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 other organizations. And then you need someone else to walk around and say, "Okay, that's great, but exactly how are we going to do this? Exactly how many people we're going to need? Exactly how much is this going to cost in the end?" 
And exactly how are we going to know whether we're making progress quarter by quarter towards reaching those goals? And, you know, the higher level thinkers aren't always getting there on the first pass. And that's one of the reasons why it can be really productive to have those kinds of conversations. Because on the one hand, you're trying to get information. You know, if you're the more strategic thinker, you're, you're trying to get information about, OK, how can I actually see the forest here? But it's also equally useful to have somebody dragging you back down and say, OK, fine, but is this path really going to work? And, 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 and how would we know? And what are the kinds of things that, that, that the operational folks in the organization are going to have to do in order to achieve that vision? We, we were talking about motivations earlier and starting from a place of allowing your intrinsic motivations to drive decision making uh, versus external motivation or external rewards and things like that to drive decision making. How do we know if we're being true to what we should when when there are all these things and these stimuli coming at us? Yeah, you know, and 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 it's hard, right? Because because you know when you're when you're trying to grow a business for example you know there's there's there you want you want some recognition you're looking at at other businesses that have succeeded sometimes and thinking well why why isn't why am i not succeeding in the same way why am i not being recognized by people why didn't i get invited to give that presentation to yes. this to, to the local business group and and so you start trying to bias yourselves towards getting those intermediate kinds of recognitions that may not actually benefit the long-term vision that you had. And I, and I, I think it's really important to, to ask yourself, why am I doing this? What, what do I actually hope to accomplish? And not every day, you know, most days you got to come in and do your work, but, but I believe once or twice a year, you've actually got to sit down and say, I'm going to look back over the last year or the last six months and ask myself, why, why am I doing this? What is it that I think I'm trying to accomplish? And the reason you want to do this once a year or twice a year at most is because we know from a lot of psychology research that the more distance you create between yourself and something else in uh, and that distance can be physical distance. It can be distance in time. It can be distance socially. The more distance you have from something, the more abstractly you think about it, which allows you to pop up to that very high level. The more, the closer you are to something, the more specifically you think about it. So if I start thinking about my the work that I have to do, I mean, I came in today, not a day when I'm trying to pop up to that high level. So I came in today and I focused on what meetings do I have today? And oh, I have this really cool podcast I get to do today. That'll be fun. So I was that after, focused. That's after this. That, yeah, that'll be yeah. that'll be at about two o'clock. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, it's uh, and so um, and so I focused specifically on what are the what are the kinds of things that 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 I'm going to be doing today. But when we get towards the spring and we hit our yearly HR evaluation period. I'm going to pop back up to that higher level. I'm going to look back over the last year and I'm going to start asking questions about what am I trying to do? What, what is important? What are the key goals? And that's the sort of thing that helps me to begin to tease out. I'm doing these things because they're important for the organization. They're important for strategic goals versus I'm doing these things because, because I, I really want someone to pay attention to me or I'm, I'm doing these things because because I, I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to make a, a profit really quickly, whatever it is. 
where where I'm now, you know, I can begin to tease out when I when I look for yeah. that higher approach. A lot of times, uh, as an advisor working with people to help them make better decisions with their money, better decisions for their family, I notice particularly early in the relationship, people um, are unaware of what their own motivations are for their their own decisions and. A key yep. characteristic of someone who is unaware of what their true motivation is, in my opinion, is they assume that it is an obvious motivation to have in the first place, right? Or or yeah. an obvious pursuit. So we say uh, a very simple example might be what's important about your money. And somebody says, well, I want to get better returns. Obviously. <laughs> Duh. Like you're an idiot for asking that question. And it's as soon as I respond with, well, you said get more money. Somebody might have said not lose it, which sounds the same, but it's very different. People will start to realize, oh, my pursuit, the thing that I thought was so obvious, and because it's so obvious means I don't have to think about why it's a pursuit at all, uh, isn't a given for everyone. It's not yeah. a given. Some people don't even think about whether they want to lose it, not lose it or get more of it. They're not even thinking about their money. You yep. think about it and you think, I want to make more. So that's at least somewhere. Yeah. Um, people who are unaware of those motivations, you know, they, they're they definitely not really attuned to the why and they're not attuned to a clear why and they've definitely not evaluated if that why is a good why in the first place. So I love that yeah. you talk about in the article that you wrote recently about how to find um, – you know, a meaningful connection with work, even if your work is not, doesn't feel meaningful. I, I really like that article because you're, bas you're basically giving that same answer, which is you've got to find something meaningful because the only option is to find something meaningful yeah. and, and work it into your regular life. But you're kind of alluding to the personal need for this also. You know, it's not just a yeah. work thing. And I think a lot of business owners particularly they actually may do this in some way with their annual business planning is go, hey, well, we got to reevaluate our mission statement and our values. And, and they, they're aware at least of a vague why for their business. And then they go home to their wife, to their husband, to their kids, to their family and their community. And they don't do that at all. So yeah. what, what can people do um, who don't have this kind of preset you know, annual business planning session, New Year's resolution, HR evaluation. There, there's something's not, it's not even on the calendar. What can they do? Yeah. So I think there's two things, right? One, one of which I, I, I love the way you frame that because I think there's two things people can do. The first is I do think you've got to, and I, I recommend separating this for personal life and work life, but I do think that you have to give yourself a once a year checkpoint. If you're not doing it regularly, you need to create it. And it could be fiscal year's end for your business, um, could be HR time, but but find a time when you're going to take a step back and ask the big picture questions about why am I doing this? Do the same thing in that personal life, offset those. Don't do them both at the same time. Um, you know, New Year's is a traditional time to do it, but it doesn't have to be that. It could be your birthday. That's another one that people will do where they'll take re real, really take stock of where they are in their lives. The other thing I recommend is, you know, um, actually get to know yourself a little bit better. So we talked a little bit about the big five personality characteristics, a lot of good inventories for that around. The other one that I recommend is there is a, there's something called the Schwartz value survey. Uh, 
created by a guy named Shalom Schwartz who, who studied values across cultures. Um, it's, a, it's a wonderful survey. And it, it, what it does is it helps you to see what it is that you value in your life. The, go, doing the values inventory is helpful for two reasons. The first is because you may be unaware of some of the things that you value that are driving what you do. The other is that your values will change over time more quickly than your personality characteristics will. Your personality is relatively stable across the lifespan. It'll change a little bit, but doesn't ch tend to change a lot. Your values will change significantly over the course of your life, which is why you'll find people in their 20s who are out there, they value achievement. They want to be seen as being successful. They want to be seen as, as being a rock star. And then later in life, they start to value community and benevolence and they, they start realizing, you know what, I want to do more for other people. I want to be out there and, 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 and helping my community. And sometimes you'll even see people who will shift from growing the business to, you know what, I'm going to take a step back in the business. I'm going to focus a little bit more on philanthropy. I'm doing things for, for my community and I'm going to let other people uh, push the next step of the business forward. And, and that's a reflection of that change in values. And, and if you're unaware that these values even exist, then it's really hard for you to begin to pay attention to the fact that you may have some changes in what it is that you value. Yeah, I, I think certainly the values that we have over life change. You know, the, the things you value in your 20s are not the same things you value in your 60s. They probably shouldn't, shouldn't be. And I, uh, there was an example that I, I shared to somebody the other day. We were talking about values and how values are, drive decisions even if you are not aware of them. And I think this speaks to the point you're making about finding times to bring that awareness up. And this, this was a, a, some clients I was working with uh, and they had what's called a shoe cave and it's not, actually not too far from Austin where you are. And so they had inherited this land from their family and they, there, were, there was a cave on the property and they said, well, we could sell tickets for people to come look at this cave. And so over time they, they put in a little gift shop and, it helped a little bit, and then they decided to put in uh, like a little zip line that that helped, and a little mini golf thing, and that helped a little bit, and some other attractions, and it was it was fine, it was growing, and then there was this one year where they added one other thing, and business took off. I mean, it was a remarkable jump from one year to the other, and I and I asked this person, I said, "What do you think that thing was that they added?" They're, they're like, "I don't know, is it a, you know a." a bigger gift shop or, you know, whatever they, they give some different examples. I said, no, what it, what it was, was a parking lot. And the parking lot made that accessible. People were showing up to this cave that they, you couldn't see from the surface. It was below ground, obviously. And they were turning around and leaving because they couldn't find a way to access the thing. And so they made it more accessible. And I said, what happens when you explore your values those values are there the whole time. But if you don't make them accessible, if you don't allow people to come in and learn about them, you're not going to make good decisions. People aren't going to understand how you're making those decisions. I said, so spend the time doing what you just described. Explore what those values are. And so I know Sanger does this. I've done this in, in businesses, meet with, with people quarterly, uh, clients or not clients, uh, employees and start with what are the things that are important to you? What are the, the values? Sometimes people don't know when they, you know, so we go through and explore what are those values and then use that as a guide to seek out what it is that you're wanting. 
right, to make better decisions. So that was had that conversation uh, last week. Yeah, uh, it's it's really terrific because you you can be you can be much more mindful of of what's going on. And you know, I think I think one of the reasons that that helps too is that um, you know a lot of times people when they're when they're not feeling right about something, they don't know why. Yeah. Uh, and 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 so you know, I think I think being explicit about what your values are, being explicit about about you know which things are driving you motivationally, um, that helps because then when something doesn't feel right, you can begin to put uh, a finger on on mm-hmm. well, what is going wrong. You know, maybe maybe I'm not living living true to my values each day. I'm coming in and 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 doing things at work that 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 really aren't, aren't fulfilling for me because, because actually my values have changed or, or maybe if I'm working for an organization, maybe the values of the organization have changed in, in ways that, that I didn't notice day to day, but, but now realize, you know what, that this, this place doesn't, doesn't work the way I want to work anymore. Yeah. How, um, how do we know when they've really changed? Because that seems like it's a gradual drift and not a, yeah, well, I'm 30 now. I gotta, I gotta care more about family than I did in my 20s, or something so yeah. concrete. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, I think dissatisfaction is your canary in the coal mine. You know, it's, it's when you, when, when you realize, you know, you wake up in, in, and, and, and you, you just don't, you don't feel good about things. You know, you, I mean, like that moment uh, when the alarm goes off. Or, or, you know, or I, I was introduced a couple of years ago to the term, the Sunday scaries. Somebody was telling yeah. me about that. They were saying, can you, cause I, I do, I write a weekly thing for fast company and somebody said, could you write about the Sunday scaries? And I said, I guess I got to find out what that is first. <laughs> and, and I realized I've never experienced the Sunday scaries. The Sunday scaries are when you where you know, when it becomes Sunday afternoon and, and you, you're, you're panicked that the week's about to start, you don't really feel like getting back to work. Yeah. You know, you're, 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 you know, the, the, the work that you have to do feels overwhelming. The work that you do feels, uh, you know, like something you don't, you don't want to have to return to. And I, you know, have, have fortunately never experienced that, but, but when you have things like that, when you can't get yourself out of bed in the morning, when Sunday afternoon comes along and, and, and you're just thinking to yourself, you know, before too long, it's going to be Monday again, it's going to be the start of a new week. That's a sign that maybe it's time to take a step back and ask yourself, what's the mismatch between what I'm doing every day yeah. and what I want to be doing? Now, you know, the fact that there is a mismatch doesn't necessarily mean that it's a problem. So let me give you an example, right? Early in your career, people often have to work really hard to establish themselves. You know, I'm, I went into academia, you know, in, in, in academia, you get your first tenure track job. And, you, and you're now on the clock. You've got between five and seven years to publish a ton of stuff and make a reputation that will allow you to get tenure at a university, which then gives you a little bit more flexibility to explore things. And this is no different than lawyers who have to make partner or doctors sure. who have to, you know, there's lots of professions where there's that early sprint to um, that, that you have to go through. And, and there's a lot of pressure associated with that in, in those professions. And it doesn't always feel good. But, but sometimes you think to yourself, you know what, I am essentially mortgaging my present for the future and, and, and establish, you know, paying down uh, you know, now in order to have something I want later. And that can be okay. 
but but you got to be clear that that's what you're doing because if you wake up every day feeling horrible and and feeling like you know what I just I I can't do this that's the time you got to say to yourself all right what is going on here why 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 don't I like the work that I'm doing and 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 why don't I do I not believe in the mission yeah. of organization and though that's where that's where there's there's some smoke that you gotta you gotta see if there's a fire and just like the um the you could reframe what that opinion of or that dissatisfaction to to realize that not everything needs to be thrown in the trash just because i am dissatisfied with my life and i feel the sunday scaries or this overwhelming anxiety and existential dread doesn't mean that i'm in the wrong job i gotta sell my company i gotta uh, get her divorce and leave my kids. Like <laughs> you don't have to throw right, everything right. away. You just have to go. How do I reframe this into something um, that I can find meaning with? And a lot of clients come to me, for example, and they've got a predetermined. Uh, they've pre-diagnosed the problem and the solution, right? They've prescribed themselves a solution, and they tell me, "All right, this is what I want you to do with my money." Oh, hold on, hold on. We're going to react emotionally based on a problem that you, I don't even know is a problem, right? But you're feeling something and that feeling needs to be addressed. And so it's yep. very reasonable, logical that you would find this solution. I'm going to sell all of my stocks because they're down 45% and that seems really bad and I want it to stop feeling bad. I see how you got there, but let's reframe this in a way that we can move forward, keeping ourselves oriented to that ultimate aim that we've been focused on. And and if you can reframe it, a lot of times it's, hey, I don't need to sell my business. I don't need to quit my job. I don't need to hate my life. I just have to figure out a way to refocus my energy on what I'm currently doing in a way that is meaningful and find the meaning yeah. that's already here in front of me. Yeah. And if you look at the research on advice, the best advice that people can get is generally information that they don't have that may be relevant for the decisions that they're going to make. So it's not, it's advice. Advice that just says do this isn't that helpful. But 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 when you when you make people aware of things they didn't know about before, that's incredibly valuable. And I think one of the reasons for engaging with people who have expertise you don't is because they can make you aware of dimensions of a problem you're trying to solve that you just didn't even know existed before. And so, you know. You know, if you you look at your stock portfolio or your retirement portfolio and you think, holy cow, it's down 25%. I just got to get out of stocks. Well, all right. But let's, you know, somebody, you know, the reason to work with an advisor then is is to have somebody say, well, okay, wait a second. Let's, what is your goal? What is the, you know, there's, there's a, you know, there's a business cycle here. Things go down, things go up. You know, let's, let's actually take Take a step back and understand what the issue is and what it is that you're afraid of. And let me provide you with information you don't seem to be aware of right now. Not necessarily framed in that way, but here's some information that I want to introduce to you that may help you to see this problem differently than you were seeing it before and may open up avenues for different kinds of solutions than what you were contemplating. What do you, what do you think is your biggest decision-making tip that people ought to follow? Yeah. Um, go slow. So um, I think, I think that, that, um, you know, uh, Stanovich, Keith, Stanovich and West, who were psychologists, they were the ones who coined 
what, what's called system one versus system two thinking. Danny Kahneman in his book, Thinking Fast and Slow, popularized that. And, and the idea behind, behind these is that we have a very fast, intuitive system that gives us a feel for how uh, things are going. And then we have a slower, more deliberative system that, that, uh, that helps us to think through the, 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 the specific elements of situations. And I think if you're making an important decision, you want to find an alignment between those two systems. because So, so it's not that you want to go only with the cold, hard, rational fact, but you do want to slow down enough to make sure that you can feel comfortable both with how a decision feels as well as the things that you're thinking about that. And that means slowing down a little bit and giving, giving that system to time to catch up and, and allow you to think through the important elements of decisions. Now, you know, if you're picking a candy bar, just pick a candy bar because even a mediocre candy experience, pretty good experience as life goes. <laughs> but, but if you're, if you're, if you're really making a decision that has long-term implications, you want, you want to feel good in your gut about it, but you also want to feel like it's got sound fundamental. Thanks for being here, Art. Where can people find you and, and the work that you're doing? Yeah. So, Sarah, John, I just want to thank you for this great conversation. It's been a, been a blast talking with you. Um, the best way to find me is, is, on, is probably on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm on all the social media platforms, but I, I write regularly for Fast Company, for Harvard Business Review, for Psychology Today. I do a radio show and podcast called Two Guys on Your Head. And I post links to all that stuff on LinkedIn. It's I think it's a great platform for connecting with people and and finding out uh, cool things that they're doing. Hey, great. I, I did check out several of the episodes on the podcast, uh, Two Guys on Your Head, and I thought it was really great. So I'd recommend it. Thanks for being here. Appreciate it. My takeaway from talking with Art was around looking at improving decision-making by imagining that you've made your second choice. Sort of imagining what would my life be if I picked B versus A and helping you to sort of evaluate what are the things about A that that were attractive? How did they align with your, your motivation uh, and values? And so I, I thought that was a really good tip that, that could be useful. I read this in an article that he posted on Fast Company um, a while back, but the distance between today and the event that we're examining causes us to think more abstractly about it. That's a really good reminder in our conversation today from something I had already read um, by Art earlier, but it was it's, it's important. It's important to examine long durations of time to, to understand and move closer to the why. Same thing is really obvious when it comes to our money, right? If you're, if you're examining day-to-day -day performance, you're probably going to drive yourself crazy. If you're examining yearly performance, then you can observe trends a little bit better. You just made a great decision to listen to this episode of Decidedly. Make another great decision and leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. We appreciate your support. It helps others find our community and defeat bad decision-making in their own lives. For more daily decision-making insights, check us out at decidedlypodcast.com and on Facebook and Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. Thanks again for listening. I'm Sanger Smith, and this is Decidedly. Insights, advice, and comments provided by Sean Smith, Sanger Smith, and speakers identified as part of the Decidedly Podcast should not be considered recommendations. 
Speakers not identified as members of Decidedly are expressing their opinion, and their statements should not be construed as reflecting the views of the Decidedly team. This podcast is produced solely for informational purposes, not personalized advice.